We have been studying through prophets. We have been dealing with prophets for a long time. Yesterday, I got a little bit of time where I got to be the innkeeper, and I explained to everybody that I was kicking people out of the inn because the inn was filled, and I said, I'm a businessman here to make a profit. And somebody else reminded me that there are different kinds of prophets, and I said, well, yes, those are the biblical prophets, but as an innkeeper, I was trying to make a financial profit. So I had some young couple marry Joseph, and, and they had the expectant baby, and I sent them down to a stable. You might know that story, but we told it yesterday here. Well, that's not the kind of prophet we're talking about. We're talking about the biblical prophets, the one who speak truth into the world. They foretell the future, but they also tell us how to live. We end with our last one, which is John the Baptist. His story is told in different places in the Gospels. I'm actually taking an interesting look at it. I'm looking at Luke chapter 1, verses 5 through 25. And besides that, we're going to be looking at verses 57 through 66. In looking at this passage, we're not looking at John the Baptist per se, but we're actually looking at his father, Zechariah, and looking and asking the question, how is it that John the Baptist became John the Baptist and had the message that he had? I'd like to begin by reminding you of things that you see all over the place. They're little sayings. You've seen them on bumper stickers. You've seen them on pins. They now appear on social media. They're little sayings like this. Keep Christ in Christmas. Or Jesus is the reason for the season. Another one we often see is the true meaning of Christmas. And when we see it, a lot of times the word true is just big and bolded out there. Now, you may ask me, what's wrong with those sayings? Well, on the one hand, I would say nothing, but on the other hand, I'm going to suggest everything. You see, I listen, and often what people are saying is they're trying to point back towards something that they see as the true meaning of Christmas, but in reality, they're not pointing us towards a Savior in a manger who comes into this world to build a relationship with us, but rather it's more pointing towards religious symbols. Things like keep Christmas trees in our schools or put up Christmas lights. Things like say Merry Christmas instead of Happy Holidays or even put creches on public property. We call all of this the December Dilemma. It's sort of what we find in the middle of the culture war that our country is involved with. Now, I do want to take my stand very clearly and tell you I love all of these things. I am a fine connoisseur of religious symbols, and in particular, I like the Christian Christmas religious symbols. Why, in the last town that I lived, there was a local church that spent over $20,000 to build a new creche to put in our downtown area. It became quite the stir and the buzz in town, and people complained about it. How could a church waste so much money on a crash? I, on the other hand, took my family down to it and said, look at this beautiful hand-carved crash from Italy. How fortunate we are to have it. So please don't get me wrong. I like all of these symbols. In fact, in my office, I have a hand-painted icon that my brother got me on a trip to the Middle East. However, there is a problem. 
The Bible never says, for God so loved the world that whosoever puts up a Christmas tree should not perish but have everlasting life. Amen? Amen. It does not exist in the scriptures. But that doesn't mean I don't like our lovely Christmas tree or it doesn't mean I don't take time to buy Christmas ties. I have a whole collection of them. Most of them came from my youngest son. You see, Jesus did not come into this world to give us new religious symbols. I like them. You may like them. But Jesus came into this world to forgive our sins and to help us build a relationship with God. He came to be the way, the truth, and the life so that we could have this relationship with God. And sometimes what happens is all of our symbols and all of our religious things, they get in the way because they become the center and they are not the center. It's our relationship with Christ that is the center. And that's why we come to today's prophet, John the Baptist. Consider him as a prophet who helps us see the difference between religion and relationships. And I invite you to pray with me. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your grace and for your goodness. We thank you that we can have an opportunity to come before you this day and know that you are God, you care about us, you watch over us, and you wish to build a relationship with us. We pray this day as we hear the story of John the Baptist, as we hear how his life was so deeply impacted by his father, and the message that he had to share in the first century continues to speak to us today. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. First, a word about John the Baptist. Good old John the Baptist, the last of our prophets, is the prophet who goes out into the desert to prepare the way for Jesus. He's spoken of in all four Gospels, and you also will find his story if you read the first century historian Josephus. So let's think about this. This is a guy who all four Gospels talk about and first century historians talk about. This is an important person. This is a guy who was well known. He goes out into the desert with a very simple message. He says people need to prepare their lives for a relationship with God. He looks at the world and he sees that the world is in wilderness, so he himself goes out into the wilderness. Do you hear what he did? He embodies what he sees around him. And he says, since people are in wilderness, I'm going to go out into the desert and I'm going to take the words of the prophet Isaiah that says, go prepare a straight path for God, prepare your hearts. And he goes out there and he preaches far away from a temple, far away from any religious symbols that were happening in the first century. What's interesting is when he's out there in the desert, he does not have social media, he does have, not have a smartphone, and he doesn't have a direct mailing campaign, he doesn't even have a big billboard that he can put in the streets of Jerusalem, but people just start hearing about this guy, and they go out and they listen to him, and they discover that what he's doing is he's really helping people come to terms with the fact that so much of what they're involved with is actually keeping them from having a relationship with God. He has a simple message. He says, basically, I didn't know Jesus. I got to know Jesus, and now I'm pointing others towards him. I like to think of him as the most non-religious person you can imagine. In fact, that's why if you read his story in the Gospels, you discover that the religious leaders were afraid of him, they tried to silence him, and they were angry with him. Think about it. You're a priest and you spent all your time 
getting people to come to the temple and give their money and, and come and offer their prayers. And now some guy is getting people's attention out in the desert saying, no, 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 that's not what it's about. It's about getting to know God personally in your life. And that's what he does. And that's a message that resonates so well with people in the first century. I like to think of what would happen if John the Baptist came here today. He would rip down our Christmas trees. He would throw away our wreaths. He'd take away the presents like Scrooge did. I'm sorry, I think it was actually um, the Grinch who takes away the presents, wasn't it? That's right. And he'd probably rip up our Christmas ties, only I would hide mine so he couldn't get my tie collection. Because if they cause us to have something get in the way of our relationship with God, they become a problem. Do you hear that? When they become the distraction, they become the problem. In their right place, they're all okay. Religious symbols can be nice because they can point us to a different truth. But when they get in the way, they become the problem. How did he get there? How did this guy who's the son of a priest end up out in the desert saying, forget about all that religious stuff, let's talk about our relationship with God. Now, some people would say, well, obviously he must have had a bad relationship with his dad. He must have had a daddy problem. Maybe he had an overly strict, overly harsh father. I would like to suggest that's not the case at all. It's not that he rejected what he learned from his father. I believe he embraced what he learned from his father, his father who was a priest. And that's why the passage that we're looking at this morning, Luke chapter 1, is so important. Yes, it all had to do with how John the Baptist's father, Zechariah, had had an experience with God around the time when he learned that he was going to have a son in the first place. And the first thing that Zechariah, this priest, learned, this guy who was a person who went to the temple and was faithful and pious in all that he did, and has an opportunity, finally, when lots are drawn, that his name comes up, that he gets to go in and he gets to be the person who lights the incense what Zechariah discovered is religion can get in our way. Hear that? Religion can get in our way. It happens all the time. You see, Zechariah was a religiously perfect priest. If you and I had met him, we would go, now that's a guy who really has it all together. The Bible says he was moral in his dealings with others. He was fair in how he treated people. He was honest. He prayed. Not only did he pray, now when he's chosen to be the person who gets to go in and light the incense, he knows the right thing to do is have other people pray, so he's got a whole bunch of people praying outside the temple while he's inside. The only problem was with all of the stuff that was religiously right in his life, all of the education he had, he could read and recite the Torah, he knew the scriptures, he offered his prayers, there was one thing lacking. He didn't have a relationship with God. He didn't have faith. He didn't trust God. He didn't know that God would listen to and answer his prayers. You see that in verse 20 of our text, because what happens is one day when he is there and he's chosen to be the person to light the incense, the Bible says an angel comes to him, the angel Gabriel. So try to think, imagine that. He's been praying for a son. 
He has this opportunity to go into the holiest of holies in the temple. He's going to light incense, and an angel shows up. Now, I used to often say, you know, the Bible says that angels can appear like human beings because we've all entertained angels unaware. Perhaps it was a person. He just thought it was a person that he was talking to. But I've grown more to say, no, imagine your most fluffy, angelic-looking angel and think of it that. That's probably more what he saw because that's more consistent with the story. Because when he's there in the temple, he's been praying for a child, he's done all of his religious activities, this angel Gabriel speaks to him and says, guess what? Congratulations! Your prayers have been answered. You're going to have a child. And Zechariah doesn't miss a beat. He goes, yeah, I don't think so. And the angel scratches its wing, says, what do you mean you don't think so? And Zachariah says, yeah, my wife's too old and I'm too old, Dad, and we're not going to have a kid. Do you get it? The religion was all in place, but the faith was lacking. He didn't trust God. He'd been offering prayers that he really never thought could be answered. He'd been doing all the stuff, but he hadn't taken time to have a personal relationship with God. And so in verse 20, the angel says back to him, Behold, Zechariah, you will be silent and unable to speak until the day at which these things take place, because you did not believe my words, which have been fulfilled in their time. This, I suggest, is the story that John the Baptist heard when he was growing up. Then, as an adult, he had heard his dad say, You know, son, I went through this time in my life where I was religious, I was doing all the right things, but I didn't trust God. I was doing everything on the outside to impress everybody else. They even chose me and let me go and, and light the incense. I had people praying for me, but I really didn't believe that God can answer my prayers. And now John the Baptist is living in a time, and he's looking out and he's saying, oh my goodness, the world that I live in is exactly what my dad described his life was. And that's why John the Baptist goes out into the desert. Religion is something that far too often takes over. It becomes about having the perfect tree, saying the right things, dressing the right way, going to church, putting up the, the, the tree, decorating our house a certain way, all the while missing the fact that God wants to strip through every bit of that and go right to our heart and ask us, do you trust me? Do you know me? Do you know that I love you? Do you know that I love this world? Do you know that I came for every single person? Do you know when you struggle with somebody else, I died for them also? I think of John Wesley, founder of Methodism. You can't be in a church in our tradition without talking about John Wesley. It's John Wesley is a guy who gets educated in England in the late 18th century. He's a brilliant man, goes to Oxford, gets the highest degrees he can, top of his class. Brilliant theologian. He also is very particular in what he does, and he keeps a journal, and he keeps his journal every day. So we know all about his life, because we can go back and read all the things that happened to him. He was so careful with his journal, he went back and he revised his journal. And then what ends up happening is he graduates, he's ordained, he has all the trappings of the church, and he realizes that if he's really going to be a man of religion, he needs to come to America to do something that other people won't do, 
So he gets on his ship and he's crossing the Atlantic with the whole purpose of coming to Georgia so he can inform everybody about his religion and the things that he believes and he can share the gospel with everyone else. And now a huge storm comes up. And John Wesley realizes that he's terrified and he's afraid to die. And he's thinking to himself, what happens if this ship goes down? And he notices all the while that he's filled with fear, doing all of his religious activity with all of his degrees, with bishops who have put their hands on him to have called him an ordained pastor. He notices other people, these Moravians, and they're singing hymns and quoting scripture and having a prayer meeting. And he's like, what in the world is with that? And the storm is over, and he goes to them, and he says, weren't you afraid? And they go, no, we weren't afraid. He goes, why weren't you afraid? He goes, well, well if, if we died, we just would have gone at home to heaven. I mean, you know, we trust Jesus. He goes, weren't your wives and the women afraid? And the guy he's talking to says, no, they weren't afraid either. They knew that if they died, we would all go to heaven. Weren't the children afraid? No, children weren't afraid either. And it got John Wesley thinking, there may be something wrong with my religion. I'm religiously perfect, and now he comes to America and he fails as a missionary. It's legendary how bad it is. Ends up leaving as a disgraced missionary, is questioning everything, until one day, finally, he's at a place called Aldersgate, and they're having a prayer meeting, and he says, my heart was strangely moved, strangely warmed, and I did trust in Christ and Christ alone for my salvation. And finally, he realizes there's a difference between religion and relationship. He had the religion, but he didn't trust Jesus. He had all the religious trappings in place, but he hadn't, trust God, hadn't trusted God. He hadn't realized that no matter what, he could put his life in the hands of his Savior. This is a question that comes to each one of us, not only this time of year, but certainly does come this time of year. Do we have religion or do we have a relationship with Christ? Do we know that Jesus loves us and died on the cross for us and has our past, our present, and our future in his hands, and no matter what, we can trust him? Now, I am anything but a perfect father, but I do love my kids. And my youngest son, one of the things that was always interesting about him, and it's actually still true, he calls it getting seasick, is getting carsick. And he gets carsick really easily. He's the only person I know that I could back out from the parsonage to the mailbox, and he could be sick to his stomach and have to get out of the car. So we had to, from the time he was young, be really careful in how we transported him around. And he especially had a hard time being on a school bus. So what we did is we realized he couldn't ride a school bus. I'm a pastor, so I got to drive him to everything. And that was great, because that gave me a chance to be with my son all the time. So I used to drive him to school, pick him up from school, drive him to activities, pick him up after activities. And I always made sure, because I wanted him to know he could trust me, I always got there early. So I was always sitting in line. I was either first or second in line all the time. And one time I said to him, I said, Todd, do you ever worry that I'm not going to be here? And he goes, no, Dad, you're always the first one here. I never worry at all. I said, well, what if I didn't show up? He said, you always show up. What if you weren't here? He said, well, if you weren't here, I'd figure that you'd got caught in traffic and you'd be here in a minute anyhow. That is because he had a relationship with me and he knew that I always wanted to be there early. I'm an imperfect father, get me? I'm not a perfect dad. But as an imperfect parent, I wanted my kids to know they could trust me 
When we build a relationship with God, we build a relationship with a perfect heavenly Father that we can always trust, who always is there for us, that we never have to worry about. He loves us. He cares for you. He created you. He sent his son to die for you. And things may not always go the way that we want them to go, but God is always present in our lives. Amen? That's what it's about. It's not about religion. It's about building that trusting relationship. And what we discover is it's not dependent upon us anyhow. It's only our having faith because God is faithful even when our religion gets in the way or even when our doubt gets in the way or even when our unfaithfulness gets in our way or even when our lack of faith gets in the way. Verses 24 and 25, we read again about Zechariah, the father of John the Baptist, who's not trusted God He's not believed that God was really going to live, give them a child. But then we read these words. After these days, his wife Elizabeth conceived, and for five months she kept herself hidden, saying, Thus the Lord has done for me in the days when he looked on me to take away my reproach among my people. Did you catch that? Zechariah didn't have faith, but God was still faithful. Do not miss that point, folks. Zechariah did not get it right, but God still answered his prayer. It's not transactional. It's not like going to a gas station. That's what we're used to. I go to the gas station, I pull out my credit card, I stick it in, it goes, eh, decline because I forgot to pay the bill. I don't get the gas. So I make sure you got money in the account, you stick the card in the gas pump, it goes, congratulations, you can buy gas, and you get some gas because that's a transactional relationship. As long as I give, I get back. We're used to that in life. That's how Zechariah, unfortunately, was thinking about his life. That's not what it is at all. Even when he didn't do the right thing, even when religion got in the way, God was still faithful. Let's be honest about every single one of us, including myself. We've all gone through those moments of doubt, folks. We've all gone through those moments when we're unfaithful. We've all gone through those moments when we don't get it right. Those are the days when we're walking in the supermarket and Pastor Stan comes along and we turn the other way and we go this way because we'd want him to see us. <laughs> but even when that happens, God still blesses us. Because God's not there as a transactional God waiting for you to do the thing so he can do it. It's not like you go to church and then God says, you earned five brownie points, congratulations, you're going to get a better gift this Christmas. Or you mess up and God says, naughty, 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 I'm going to get you for that. That is not the relationship that God has with us. The birth of John the Baptist happened despite Zachariah's spiritual condition. Never mistake thinking that God wants to get us or reward us with what God is doing. God wants to get us to know him, to build a relationship with him, to learn to love him, and to learn to love other people. And that's what faith is about. Jesus says it best when he says, God causes the rain to fall on the just and the unjust alike. God's purpose is to shower blessings on us, not so we go, oh, I get it, I'm going to get more of them if I'm a good boy or girl, but rather so that we can understand that God is a loving God and a gracious God, and when we sinned and turned away, he sent his son for us to forgive us, and now the Holy Spirit wants to build a better life in our lives so we can become the people that God wants us to be. When I was a child, the first movie I ever went to was A Sound of Music, and it's still one of my favorites. 
but it also contains the song that I call the most dangerous song from my childhood. When I was a kid, after I saw The Sound of Music, I could tell you what every song was and when they were and what everything that happened all the time because it was such a special movie to me, and I still love to watch it. And one of those great moments is when Maria and the captain finally pledged their love to each other. They're in a gazebo, and it's raining outside, and they're thinking about how in just a few years they'll be running an inn in Vermont. <laughs> and they're promising their love to each other. And then they sing these words to each other. Here you are standing there loving me, whether or not you should. So somewhere in my youth or childhood, I must have done something good. I want a big circle to come up with an X across it going, not! It doesn't work that way. God's not out there to get you or to reward you because somehow you figured out some way of being a big, better person than someone else. This idea that I do something and get something is not what God is doing in our life. God is showering his blessing upon us. God is wooing us and working in our hearts because God loves us unconditionally, and now God wants us to love him unconditionally. God wants us to talk to him, to pray to him, to read his word, to get to know him better, so that when we go through those moments of life where we've been praying for something and things happen, we don't go, oh, wasn't that a nice coincidence that that all happened? but we can see God's faithfulness. And when we can go through tough times in our life and things are not going how we want them to go, we can trust and say, you know, I know that God's blessing was with me no matter what. I remember the person I love and care about deeply who talked to me about the pain of losing a child. And I said, did that ever make you doubt your faith in God? And she said, no, it did the opposite. I know I'll see my child again someday. I trust in God. I trust I've given my life to him. I put my hands in his care. I want no other way to live. You see, God invites us into a relationship built on faith and faith alone. Not on what we do. Not on being better than someone else. Not on getting it better than the next-door neighbor or somebody else in our family, built on faith. That's why the story tells us about this whole annunciation to Zechariah, that Zechariah had also been told in verse 13 of, of our chapter that he should name the child John. So here he is in the temple, and he's up there doing his thing, and he's supposed to be all by himself, and everybody else is outside, and he's lighting the incense, and the angel comes to him, and he's explaining away the angel, and he's disagreeing with the angel and having an argument and thinking, I, this is just some crazy thing that's happening anyhow. But somehow in the midst of it, the angel says, you shall name the child John. And he remembers that. And that becomes important in the story because now for these nine months, Zechariah can't speak. Now, I put a footnote in my Bible it says, those were the happiest nine months of Elizabeth's life. <laughs> you can pray for my wife. She's just praying that I would lose my voice for nine months. It hasn't happened yet. But not that we would have another child. That would, we're, we're not wanting a Zachariah and Elizabeth experience here. The baby 
had been born. And people now want to make the name of the child. And they come and they ask the question, is this baby going to be called Zachariah? And everybody who's standing there says, going to be Zachariah. That's the best name for this child. And Elizabeth speaks up and she says, no, the name of the child will be John. And now folks realize that this is the first century. And in the first century, you do not have the opportunity for women to have equal opportunity to make decisions with men. It's not like today. You see, when David was born, we were in the hospital, and the baby's born, and we had agreed, or I had thought, that the name that I had chosen for the child was going to be given, and I had chosen the name Stephen Charles. And the, the question got asked to Regina, what is the name of this child? And she said, David Stanley. And I turned to her and go, really? <laughs> it's a true story. That's how David got his name. That's not what happened in the first century. In the first century, it became the father who gets named the child. And so now, even though everybody's saying the child's name should be Zachariah, and even though Elizabeth is saying the name should be John, now they turn to Zachariah. What are you going to name this baby? And the scripture tells us, verses 63 and 64, Zachariah asked for a writing tablet, and he wrote these words. His name is John. And they all wondered. And immediately his mouth was opened and his tongue was loosed and he spoke blessings to God. Although he still could not talk, although God had not done some big miracle in his life, although he went through at that moment thinking, I may never be able to speak again, he now was trusting God. And he now had a relationship with God. And he now knew that no matter what God told him, he was going to do. And so without expecting anything in return, he goes, the name is John, because now he's trusting. And then the Bible tells us he gets his voice back, and what does he do? He bears witness, and he praises God. I love the story out of communist China. It comes in the time before the relationships were worked out between the United States and, and communist China, where we got to go in and see what was going on with the churches. And it was a time when the Christian churches were being deeply persecuted. And here in America, we were praying, and anywhere where Christians were gathering, we were praying just for some fledging little existence of the church to stay together. All the while, we were unaware of it that the churches were growing massively. And, and when Nixon opened up the relationships with China again, we discovered that, that the church had grown like a hundredfold. And we, people were amazed because in the midst of persecution, the communist government had completely shut down the churches, but they grew. And now the story comes out that one time in, there was a Bible study that was happening secretly, and everybody was gathered together and they were reading their Bibles, and in came the officials from the communist government, and they had guns, and they came storming through the doors, and they said, is this a Bible study? Everybody up against the wall, and people were up against the wall, and they thought this was it. And the guard said, anybody who's really not a Christian, who you're just here visiting, you can leave now. And more than half the Bible study clears out and leaves. And the guard says, anybody else? One more person gets up and leaves. And he looks and says, what about the rest of you? We're Christians. We trust in Jesus. Guard puts down his Bible and says, good, I want to find out who the real Christians are. What chapter are we studying tonight? Do we trust Jesus? 
Do we trust God? Do we put our lives in his hand? Do we realize that no matter what's going on, it's not our religion? Do we hear what John the Baptist called people to when he was out in the desert? It's not your religion that saves you, folks. It's your relationship with Jesus. It's getting to know this guy that John the Baptist had got to know. Relationships are what it's all about. We, again, are imperfect people, and yet we know how much relationships matter to us. That's what God is wanting from us. He wants you to talk to him, to read your scriptures, to learn to love unconditionally, to learn to realize that when you really dislike somebody, God created that person too, and Jesus died for them too, and God doesn't really care that you disagree with their political position. You're called to love them unconditionally. Because that's what happens when we build a relationship with God. We learn to live a different way. Last Friday, a couple days ago, I had a paper that was due for my doctoral program at Asbury Seminary, and I got it done early, and I felt good about it. And I had done well on my sermon, so I had a little bit of extra time. Do you know where my mind went? I want to go over to Carver. I don't want to spend a couple hours with my grandchildren. So I got in my car, and I drove over, and I went in, and I said, Honey, to my wife who was watching our grandchildren, I'll take the grandchildren for the next couple hours. Because I love them, I don't want to have a relationship with them. I want to be with them. I want to spend time with Ruby. I want to spend time holding Henry. I love it when my little grandson smiles at me. Because it's about relationship. Now, don't get me wrong, I started a tradition last year that I care about, and I bought a gift basket that comes in the mail and it gets sent to my grandchildren and I did the same thing this year and they got a a basket in the mail and I was excited and I hope I will always be able to do that though that every year maybe at some point they'll say I wonder when grandpa's basket's going to come in the mail but you know what, that's just a symbol that's like a Christmas tie that's not a relationship if the only thing I do as a grandfather is send a gift basket to my grandchildren I'm not much of a grandfather That's what God wants us to understand about relationships. He wants us to build relationships not just with one another, but with God. So we talk to him, and we trust him, and we put our lives in his hands. And as I want to spend time with my grandchildren, God wants to spend time with us. Trees and sayings and presents and religious traditions, they're all okay. I'm a connoisseur of them. I love them. You want to compare Christmas traditions? I think they're awesome. I've already gone out looking for Christmas tree lights, and I think I know the best decorated house on the South Shore, and I'll compare it to the one that you think it is. But someday, when I stand before my Savior, he's not going to say, so Stan, if you can name the best decorated house on the South Shore, then I know that you have a good relationship with me. It's all about getting to know Jesus. And folks, that's where we end our prophets. Because in the end, that's what they all were pointing us towards. They gave us these messages that ultimately want us to trust God and put our lives in his hands and to realize there's a different way to live. If you've never trusted Jesus, if you've never trusted Jesus, when I offer this prayer, I just invite you to say the words after me. If you have, repeat the words after me also. And if you'd like to share and talk with me about it later or with one of our pastors, I'd love to have the conversation. Let's bow our heads and hearts together. And I'm just going to invite us all to repeat these words. Gracious and loving God, 
I trust in Jesus as my Savior. I put my life in your control. And I ask you to guide me throughout my life. Help me not be consumed with religion. But help me build a relationship with you. Today and every day. Amen.